Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. It's our privilege and pleasure to welcome you to this program again, and uh, we invite you to stay with us for the whole hour. We have a very important uh, Bible study prepared today. We are under this uh, topic for quite a few weeks uh, in the crucible with Christ. But today we are going to look a little bit more into Christ in the crucible. I would like to welcome our panel. And uh, it's good to have you back with us, Ken. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, wonderful to be back again. Certainly miss being here, but uh, glad to be uh, part of the panel again this, today. Len, thank you for joining us, too. Thank you for your welcome, Nick. And hello, listeners. Brenton, thank you for joining from uh, Southeast. Nick, it's a privilege to be here, and this is a most important topic, Christ in the crucible. Um, I just pray that our comments will honour the, the Lord and be of benefit to those who are listening. I should mention that we are uh, broadcasting from uh, South Australia, and uh, yeah, Brenton lives in the beautiful uh, place there, Mount Gambier, but we'll go now to a bit more north, and we'll say hello to Will. It's great to be with uh, you all, uh, Nick. Thank you. I would like to thank Joe for uh, joining us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure as always. Yes, and Joe, uh, thank you so much for working on this uh, beautiful uh, Bible study. As I mentioned, Christ in the Crucible. You are going to facilitate this uh, discussion today. And uh, I would like to just uh, hand it over to you. Please take us through this study. Okay, thank you, Nick. As you've already said, today we'll be concluding our In the Crucible with Christ theme. We have had some fruitful discussions each week, and our final topic this week is Christ in the Crucible. We will be considering some important questions, and um, hopefully they will stimulate us to further reflect on the life of Christ and what it must have been like for him. How similar or different were his experiences on this earth to ours? What difficulties and trials did he face? And what can we learn from these, some of which we can and ought to apply to our own lives? I would like to ask Ken, Ken, would you lead us out in prayer? Certainly. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word with our listeners today. Thank you for your word that it tells us so much about you and the plans you have for this earth and the people on it. Lord, as we look around us today, We see chaos, mayhem, and unrest everywhere. We see floods, fires, earthquakes, wars, and famine, diseases and pestilence, pain and suffering. Heavenly Father, this is not what you wanted for this beautiful planet and the people you put on it. You know only too well what suffering is like. Jesus took on the sin of the entire world and paid the price for all our sins so that we could be reconciled to you. But that does not mean we will escape some of the pain sin brings upon us. As long as we're in this world, we will have problems, especially as we near the soon return of Jesus. Your word tells us to be of good cheer no matter what we are facing, as it only is a short time as Jesus overcame all he had to endure for us. Lord, many times it's very hard for us to accept those things that come upon us. We ask why? And many times there is no answer. In these times, Lord, please be with us and reassure us you are still there and love us as you did from the beginning. 
help us through these studies to reassure our listeners that you know what they are going through and assure them you will never leave them or forsake them. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 We sometimes complain about our own lives and about things that happen to us or around us, and we often feel that no one really understands our difficulties, our suffering, our pain, and yet we are not unique. People have experienced these same issues, these crucibles, which are often quite hot and uncomfortable. Stemming right back to the fall, going from a perfect world to this, Imagine Eve's pain to discover that her eldest and possibly favourite son had killed his younger brother Abel and then gone on the run, afraid of retribution. It seemed that all was sliding, plummeting downward, and human suffering seemed to know no limits. Did anyone care? Could anyone see? This is a question which is posed even today amidst all the turmoil of the present world, and the answer is a sure yes. Christ was and is watching and grieving over the pain that people, his children, were and are inflicting on each other. We often imagine that Christ's suffering began at his birth. However, this is not so. God was not blissfully unaware or remote and untouched by what was happening. There were times when circumstances warranted intervention, and we're familiar with those circumstances in the Bible. One of those interventions was a baby boy born some 2,000 years ago, Will. We know that the birth of Jesus was foretold and promised right there in the beginning after the fall in Genesis. I wonder if you might like to read these texts or paraphrase them and tell us who was God addressing and what was he saying and who who were the seeds? We're introduced right at the beginning of the Bible account in Genesis 3 to a saviour. We are introduced not only to a saviour, but we're also introduced to a villain who did all that he could to oppose and distract and harass Christ while here on earth. The villain that was responsible for the suffering which Jesus experienced. I'd like to read the texts. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. But the verse 15 is the promise. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. As a result of the transgression in Eden, Adam and Eve, in fact all of humanity, were not abandoned to the results of evil. In this very sentence pronounced upon Satan, an announcement of redemption is given. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Here's the promise. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. But this sentence spoken in the hearing of our first parents was to them a wonderful promise. They were given that good news even before they heard of the rest of the sentence concerning thorns and thistles, toil and sorrow that must be their portion, or even of the dust to which they must return. They listened to the words that could not fail of giving them hope. All that had been lost by yielding to Satan could be regained through Christ. A a wonderful promise indeed. 
what Will had to say about verse 15. Note that it says, it shall bruise thy head. This is personal. Now, it doesn't say that uh, the enmity, the enmity would be between the woman's seed, in other words, their successors, in other words, those who came from them. But it, it talks in personal terms. God is saying here that this is going to crush your head. Another word for bruise is crush, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the serpent is not promised to be crushed. The instigator of it is promised to be crushed. And, of course, that took mm-hmm. place on the cross. And I found that quite interesting that it goes from general statement of seed to a personal pronoun, it shall bruise thy head. Mm, I, I found that quite interesting. Mm. Mm. Len? I suppose many people are not really aware of who the woman, the seed, and so on is. It might be good at this stage to identify who the woman is, and I believe that refers to the um, people who are true to God, the true church, if you like. The seed of the woman is Jesus himself, and um, the seed of the evil one, well, they are his people. It's pointing toward Jesus, the seed of the woman, who does the main, how can I say, is in the heat of the conflict to rectify this sin situation which began right back in the Garden of Eden. And yet the seed did not come when most expected it. No. Um, there was a there was a period of waiting. But in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. And as we discussed the week before that, before this, I think, the circumstances were perfect for his birth or as perfect as they would get. Ken, what does Luke 2, 7 tell us about the background of his parents? Were they wealthy, privileged, the circumstances of his birth? Would you like to comment on that? Certainly. We read in the Bible that uh, Joseph and Mary actually were not at all wealthy. I wouldn't even call the middle class, but they're certainly working class as such, and they were quite poor. And uh, it tells it in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, and this is the time when Joseph and Mary went up to um, Bethlehem to do the, uh, the texting for Caesar. And it tells us that she brought forth her first born son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So being poor is never easy. Wealth can insulate us from many difficulties. And uh, we, we see that Jesus was not born in a palace because if he had been born into wealth and all the trappings of that, he would have wanted nothing and he would have not have been able to relate to the poor people or to mix and talk with them and tell them about God in a way that they could understand. That's a very good point. Brenton, not long, not long after that, the family had to flee. Would you be able to shed some light on the reason for this and what was happening here? Well, basically it's found in um, the book of Matthew, Joe, in chapter 2. I'll give you a very quick background. Herod the Great was ruling at the time. Herod the Great ruled for a period of 36 years. Um, this man was a particularly bad person in some ways. Uh, he executed three of his own sons, also his favourite wife, 
And the story that appears in scripture is how an angel appeared to Joseph after the episode where the, the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the king that had been born and Herod heard about this and brought them in before him. And he said, when you find him, let me know so that I can go and worship him as well. Obviously, the intention was, based on what subsequently happened, the intention was to kill him. I mean, if he could kill his own sons, he certainly wouldn't have any compunction about killing um, uh, an upstart king, as he saw it. So what happened is the angel warned Joseph and Mary to leave and go to Egypt. Now, in Hosea 11.1, the example of God's love for Israel is used where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. It's talking about the Exodus and talking about God's love. um, And Matthew uses Hosea 11.1 to illustrate the fact for God's care over his son, even when he was a baby. Um, God's love for his people was still the same. But what actually happened is Jesus went over the same ground, Joe, that um, Israel did. Israel failed when they left Egypt. When Christ left Egypt as as a baby and grew into manhood, he did not fail. So all along the line where Israel had failed, Christ succeeded. And so what what's actually happening in this example here is it's not a prophetic declaration, I believe, by Matthew. It's, it's using the illustration of a comparison. It's saying God loved Israel and brought them out of Egypt. God loved his son. He knew um, what was required for the plan of salvation and protected him by sending him and his mother and father to Egypt. And this is where it all began. So um, there's a very solid foundation, Joe, for the plan of salvation. Satan's attempt to destroy the child at the start was unsuccessful and right through, right up to and including the crucifixion where all appeared to be lost, Satan was still unsuccessful. And we are the beneficiaries of that today. That's very true, very true. Now, we know that when Herod died and the acute danger passed because his family spent a number of years in Egypt, two years possibly. Yeah. Um, the acute danger passed. I was just wondering, Nick, if you would be able to tell us what happened after Herod died and the acute danger had passed. And perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about how Jesus was different as a child to other children. And could that have been said of any other child? And I refer to Luke one thirty-five. Right, Joel, as you just uh, mentioned in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 1, and um, 35, it says that, um, and the angel answered and said to her, means to Jesus' mother, to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will be overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's an amazing thing, you know, to a a mortal to hear these words. And I believe uh, Mary was quite puzzled about all these things, but she kept into her heart, as the Bible says, these things. Now, just to answer the question, uh, uh, Joe, first of all, I believe Jesus was um, 
different than other children. And I will give an example. You may heard about uh, in the Bible, Samson. He was chosen to represent God, which means he had a mission. Now, Jesus was the same, promised, and uh, as long as he stays connected with God, the Father, God will achieve through him what he had in plan. was not the case, and I'm not going into that story. It was not the case, unfortunately, with uh, Samson for uh, many instances. But coming back to Jesus and uh, his birth, obviously the whole world was uh, impacted by this. Even those people from far away, you know, coming to see Jesus and those people who were interested in the promises of God, who knew what the Bible uh, taught. But here he we find out that Jesus was born and right from the beginning, not only himself, because he was a baby, he may not realize that, but his parents encounter a lot of uh, hardship and opposition to the point that uh, Jesus was threatened to be killed. And then he had to flee, as the Bible puts it, uh, in Egypt. The angel uh, uh, showed them that, and they went in Egypt and spent uh, some time there. As you just said, we don't know exactly how long, but uh, quite a bit of time until that uh, ruler, which was in the area like Herald, he died. And then his um, son came into the, into the throne and they were prompted to come back to the promised land where uh, the whole thing will unveil. And now it was a little bit of a tricky one. It says here in Matthew 2, verse 22, but when he heard that Arhelus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herald, he was afraid to go there. I mean, the parents, they were afraid to go there because they, they knew what, uh, what was the reason for them to flee. But anyway, they were uh, going to Nazareth. And here is very interesting because this was in the prophecy. Um, and this was a fulfillment of the prom, uh, prophecy, which was spoken by the, the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? was a question of one of the the people in Jesus' time, because Nazareth was probably a, a very a small place and not with very good reputation there. It's interesting that uh, all these things uh, happened, and we can see that the hardship, the challenges, the uh, all the things which Jesus and his parents encountered right from the beginning. Jesus, even a small child, I believe the parents would have Talk to him when he starts to to understand uh, a few things. And he may ask even questions. Why are we here? Why are we uh, doing this and that? Luke 2, verse uh, 40 and 52, uh, again, tell us that uh, the child grew and became strong. And he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him as it was promised. He grew, he grew in favor with God and man. He would have been popular with everyone. And um, the Bible doesn't really give us a, a huge amount of information about his uh, uh, childhood, but give us enough to understand that Jesus was a special child. He behaved. He was probably not attracted to the worldly things necessarily, but he was uh, very committed to the mission. He even understood I mean, just to bring that example, he was 12 years old and went in the temple and he knew that he's in the 
he needs to be in the house of his father. What I would like to say is that he encountered all the challenges like any other child, but at the same time, any other child in this world, they could have favor before God, even if the parents, you know, will, will uh, dedicate themselves and their children to the cause of God. Mm. Will, do you have a comment? What Nick said with regard to Jesus being popular among everybody, I don't know if that's truly uh, all the way it was. Anybody with uh, the wondrous purity that he had would soon uh, be rubbing people up the wrong way. And we know that um, his life was a very difficult one. In fact, um, there is an inspired statement which comments on his life which says, Satan was unwearied in his efforts to overcome the child of Nazareth. And from his earliest years, Jesus was guarded by heavenly angels. Yet his life was one long struggle against the powers of darkness. You know that there should be one person on earth whose life was free from defilement of evil. was a terrible offense and a perplexity to Satan. And I think Satan left no means untried to ensnare Jesus. No child of humanity, we are told, will ever be called upon to live a holy life amid such fierce conflict with temptation as was our Savior. A unique child, Joe, very unique, but life from the beginning, a hard one. Yes, it would have been. Pretty tough being a, a, a perfect child, if you like. Imagine you'd be a bit of a target, wouldn't you, with bullies? You know, you'd be excluded from social circles or their little, you know, the little gangs that they had in the neighborhood. You'd be teased for being a goody goody two shoes or um, even ignored. Yeah, as you've read that beautiful statement, Satan would not have left an opportunity wanting to kill him right at the beginning, and then he left him alone till the age of 33. He would have, or 30, he would rather have just, he would have pursued him relentlessly and made his life as hard as he possibly could. I agree with that. And yet the Bible does say that he grew in favor with God and man. And so there were obviously godly people who could see some beauty and some goodness in him and appreciated it. But um, I think the majority probably gave him a hard time. And some of, he would have felt rejection. Lynn, rejection is something we have all felt and will feel. Um, we could have been rejected for a variety of reasons, and it is never a pleasant experience. And I'm sure Jesus had plenty of rejection throughout his life. Have we ever been mocked or ridiculed or rejected for trying to follow God or do his will? There are some passages that give us clues to what caused much of the heartache and the rejection Jesus experienced and felt. Would you like to give us some wisdom here? I would like to start around 600 years before Jesus was born. Prophet Isaiah, under inspiration, wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verses 3 and 4, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So there's the setting, and we've already spent some time discussing some of the issues that Jesus faced as a young person. 
you use the expression goody goody two shoes joe <laughs> and i was going to use that i remember when my kids were attending high school although our oldest son was quite talented he he didn't put his best foot forward but there was a girl in the class who was very keen to do well she was a nice girl pretty girl well spoken however she was rejected because she was too good for the others have i ever felt like that well i i don't remember actually too much of that happening in my younger years but it is true when somebody stands out from the crowd very often they become the target for other people now jesus in his ministry was very popular at one stage but when people began to realize that the kingdom he intended to set up was not going to be a physical kingdom in order to oust the romans but was a spiritual kingdom a lot of them turned away from him in other words they rejected him jesus made this statement i am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life well for those who were tuned in spiritually that was a wonderful statement but for the rest it was a reason for mocking and condemnation at one stage the jews who were the jewish leadership who were constantly harassing and questioning and trying to trip up jesus even accused him of being in league with the devil but jesus quickly silenced them and he said any kingdom that's divided uh, amongst itself is not going to survive he had the right answers but they were always on his back trying to to uh, accuse him of something jesus wasn't only rejected because of his goodness but because he didn't fit in with what the establishment wanted that was an earthly political kingdom so i haven't suffered too much rejection but jesus certainly did on my behalf brenton and then nick uh, can i suggest joe that there's something here that we need to apply today in 2022 not only for ourselves as panel but australian society as a whole has something joe you know it's called the tall poppy syndrome you think you're better than us, we'll cut you down to size. Australians are noted for that, not just here in this country, but also overseas. You talk to people who know Australians. And um, whilst Christ, I guess we should not use the term tall poppy about him, his purity and his holiness stood out. And online bullying these days in social media and that sort of thing is a very strong feature. It's interesting sometimes when you look at someone who or you look at a, a website where someone is telling the truth, the sheer volume of um, abuse um, that these people get for telling the truth, particularly when I'm talking about biblical things. Christ was the embodiment of truth, and when he was telling the truth, it wasn't well received. And I would suggest that even when he was popular for the majority of them, the problem was that they believed that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom, as Len said, but they were interested in his miracles of healing and the things that he could do for them. There weren't a great number of them that accepted him as the Messiah purely for what he said and what he taught and how it would change their hearts and their lives. 
in Matthew 12, the, the example, I don't believe personally that the Pharisees believed what they were saying and that he said he casts out demons by Baal-zebub. I don't think they believed that, but they were so committed to opposing him that if you keep saying something long enough, Joe, you start to believe it. Even if in the, in the beginning, when you made the statement, you weren't a hundred percent sure, you become more and more set in your ways. You become more and more adamant or vehement as to uh, what the situation is. And I don't believe these guys believed that Jesus was casting out demons by Baalzebub, but they were so committed to opposing him that really they were reaching a point now that where from here on, everything they did would lead to their total rejection of him. Mm. Men love the love darkness rather than light rather because than these light. things were evil. That's yes. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nick? Yeah, I was just going to say that probably we are tempted to judge uh, uh, even uh, uh, Jesus in his time with the things going on in our time. And we can risk of uh, applying some different aspects here because it, indeed it's true that we live in a very, very troublous time with a lots of uh, conflict and bullying and stuff like that. Now, from the Bible, to be honest, I don't find much that uh, speaks about Jesus in his childhood, uh, about bullying and all those things. What I know that in his innocence, he was a well-behaved child and living in a community, even when he kind of uh, misbehave, let's put it uh, as the parents thought when he went to the temple and he, he was missing from their side. Uh, the parents tried to, to kind of, uh, uh, say, why have you done this? Because it seems like he was a very good boy. I mean, he done everything good. And I personally believe that being under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he indeed, he was a special child. Now, keep in mind that when enter the ministry, when he came to the baptism and it started to be a lot of pressure on him, it started to be a lot of attack from the evil one. Before that, even when he, he was um, under that threatening of being killed, it was more the decision of the parents. The parents had to do everything. You know, he was under the guidance of his parents. The reason I mentioned this is because I personally believe if we would live in a community like they live back in those days, children will have more chances to have confidence in themselves and not to be exposed to all those uh, negative things. Now, children annoy each other, you know, but they annoy each other in their innocence and in the next minute they play together. And mm. this is very important thing. But in these days, bullying took a next level when people are exposed to all sorts of things and indeed impact hugely their mm. character and their development. Yeah, thank you. Lynn, did you have a comment too? Yes, I just wanted to say, because Brenton was talking about because Jesus was the truth, the same thing occurs even in our day. Many people prefer not to know the truth because the truth can be very uncomfortable. Mm. So what Jesus experienced mm. as the person who said he was the way, the truth and the life it still occurs these days. I don't think I'm saying anything unusual. I'm just observing what goes on in society. Mm, absolutely. Now, 
Will, there was, as Jesus approached, you know, he grew up, became a young man, looked after the carpenter shop, and then it came time for him to enter into his ministry. Now, he would have had, he would have had a lot of hard times before that. And so there was a time when something, you know, before he entered his ministry, he was baptized. And I just wonder if you might be able to share how the father showed his encouragement and approbation for his beloved son. And perhaps you'd even like to read that text, that, you know, this would have sustained Jesus. Certainly in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, God speaks to his son saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, when facing the fierce struggle against sin and the added burden of rejection and opposition of those around you, I believe that this was a great comfort to Jesus to the year, to hear the words of commendation from his heavenly father. You know, I think we must remember, Joe, that Satan just could not let Jesus lead Jesus into sin. No. He could not discourage him. Or drive him from the work that he had come on earth to do. From the desert to Calvary, um, the storm of Satan's wrath beat upon him. But the more mercilessly it fell, I believe, the more firmly did the Son of God cling to the hand of his Father and press on on the path of hardship that he had to face. And all the efforts of Satan to oppress and overcome him, only brought him, brought out a purer light of his spotless character. I think God, that Jesus held on to the words of commendation from his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mm, beautiful, encouraging words that Jesus would have sustained Jesus, at, you know, some of the worst of worst times in his life. Now we know that in his ministry, things seemed to get hotter and hotter. And, um, you know, especially when Jesus had some pointed things to say, particularly to the Pharisees and Sadducees, his words were meant to wake them up, you know, from their hypocrisy, but only stirred them up more to hate him more and resist him more. And so, Ken, Scripture tells us that on a number of occasions, these scenes became quite ugly because we know who was behind them. And um, maybe you could give us some examples. Yes, Joe, I'll look at three short examples here, starting in Matthew 8 and verse 34. The background behind this is where Jesus has arrived in Genji sense after the storm in the boat and meets a man possessed with devils. The devils talk to Jesus, recognizing who he is, and wants him to send them into a flock of pigs, which he does, and then they run off the end of a cliff and they're all killed. Well, the people round about aren't happy with this. And in verse 34, it says, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. But when they saw him, they implored him to leave the region. Now, that's really interesting. They implored him. They absolutely did not want him there. Then we look at uh, John chapter 6 and verse 42. Again, the background, this one is Jesus has been talking with the people at Capernaum and the Jewish leaders are listening and take offense at his words. 
when he said he was the son of God. And in verse 42, it says, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they looked down on him and were not very happy with those words. Then another example we find in Luke chapter 4 and verse 28 and 29, again, the background, Jesus has returned in Nazareth, where he is, where he has been brought up and is preaching. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. So they definitely wanted to kill them. But of course, we also read that Jesus just changed his character and walked through them and escaped. So these are three examples where the everyday people were definitely against Jesus and would have killed him at any opportunity they could. Brenton? Just like to comment on the first one that... Um Ken read in Matthew 8.34, it's the story of the casting out of the demons and how they went into the pigs and so on and so forth, and they begged him to leave their district. This was Satan's plan. Um, The result of the destruction of their income led them to plead with him to leave their district. But you know what? God turned it into good because about 12 months later, Jesus came back to that area he started, um, remember the two men that he healed or the, the one demoniac, depending on which one of the synoptic gospels you look at. Um, he's told the man or men to go home and tell people what great things God has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. Now, 12 months later or so, when he returned to this area, which was the Decapolis, was in the heathen area, we have the feeding of the 4,000. So Satan's plans totally backfired, even though they pled with him to leave the district. Later on, when he returned, he not only did many healings and teachings, but many people came to believe on him. And this is where we have the story of the feeding of the 4,000. So when we're going through the crucible ourselves, um, God can turn, Joe, I believe, that which we see as a negative into a positive if we trust him. That is a really good point that we can, we can gain comfort from that because it doesn't matter what happens. We know that God will turn it around in our favor. I guess as we've been talking about rejection, um, it hurts to be rejected, excluded, ridiculed, and often to avoid the pain as children and later as adults. We will sometimes tone down and dilute what we need to say or leave something unsaid. We try and appear to others or as do others because we are so keen to fit in and be accepted by the in-group or the majority. The question is, was Jesus any different? Did he kowtow to peer pressure? And were the reasons he was rejected different to the ones we generally face or are they the same? Brenton. How did Jesus feel about rejection? We know that he has. We've established that he's had a lot of rejection. But did he, the pain that he felt, was it because his pride was wounded? What about rejection did did it pain him most? I think Matthew 23, um, Joe, answers that best. I mean, you can look at examples all through his life, and we have done. Can I suggest to you before I just address Matthew 23, I believe his rejection did begin when he was born because 
you remember the wise men came and said, where is this king of the Jews born? And Herod actually had to call the priests and the rulers in to look at the book of Micah to find out where he was born. They knew where he was born. They didn't even bother to send anybody out to check the reports that they'd heard of the shepherds and the angels and that. They didn't bother to check any of that out. But here, right in Matthew 23, the chapter we know as the seven woes, we find that right at the end of it, Christ says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers his chicks, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. The comment that I've got here is Jesus wept in anguish over the doomed city, but he could not deliver them. He had exhausted every resource in rejecting the workings of God's spirit, Israel had rejected the only means of help. There was no other power by which they could be delivered. So the rejection he felt was not an affront to his personal ego or pride. I believe the rejection he felt is that the only means of saving them, when he made this comment, look, your house is left to you desolate, they went on offering sacrifices, as you know, for nearly another 40 years before the temple was ultimately destroyed. Um, but he's prefixing, he's prefiguring what is going to take place. You folk have rejected the only means of salvation. There's nothing more that heaven can do. I believe when he spoke these words, there were not only tears in his voice, he was probably sobbing. There's a big difference between our personal pride and ego being offended because of rejection and being rejected because you have come for a specific purpose. That is, you've been sent by God the Father to save this world and your own people say, we don't want you. I believe that's that's where the rejection really, really hurt. And that, that is so true. And there are lessons for us to learn there about how to handle rejection when we're trying rejection experience for when we try to live God's life, uh, to live a, a God-fearing life or to share with someone a gospel. Do we take it personally when we're rejected for doing the right thing? Are we concerned about the welfare of other people? Yes. Or are we concerned about are we concerned about their eternal destiny or is it just how we feel? And who is our comforter when we feel rejected for trying to obey God? I mean, these are just questions for us to consider. Lynn, Isaiah fifty three, one to three. It's a beautiful chapter, but if you would wouldn't mind just, you know, reading it and sharing some comments about it because it's very critical to our study today. All right. Well I read verse 3 before, but I'll read verses 1 and 2. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, referring to Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So the question is, do we reject Christ? Well, I think that the uh, 
question must be asked in two, answered in two parts. We, referring to say, uh, committed Christians, and then there might be the other part of we, those who are not committed. So I'm going to address the question from my own experience as a committed Christian. Jesus said he was the way, the truth and the life. And when we depart from the truth or the way which he has outlined, we reject him. In other words, if we do things our way, as uh, Frank Sinatra said, I'll do it my way. But that's not the way of the Lord. Unfortunately, there are many people who know the way that leads to salvation and they reject it. And I can think of somebody I know personally who've rejected it. And those, those someones, there are more than one, are the subject of my prayers all the time. Yes, if we decided we we're going to depart from the way of truth, depart from the way of life, we've rejected him. But fortunately, he leaves the door open for those who repent of their sins. Thank you. Now, we're fast approaching the close of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in John 12, 23, 24, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Who was Jesus talking about, Nick? And what was happening here? Yes, um, Joe and Panel, indeed, this uh, comes to the culmination of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And when he said those words, uh, Joe and uh, Panel, yeah, it refers to himself also and to his death, but also he refers to the disciples because he wants to teach them that they need to die to themselves to be able to bring uh, more crop, if you like, for the kingdom of God. But um, what I would like to mention here, uh, Joe, while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he invited with him three of his closest disciples, I will say three of his friends, to be with him while he was... uh, going through the to the most terrible pain, I will say, which a human ever endured or suffered. And not was not physical pain necessarily as much as, you know, the heaviness of sin on him, that the spiritual pain. But if we look in Mark chapter 14, we can find this um, recorded in the Bible. And he said to these uh, three friends of his, you know, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, Unto death, it's heavy for me. He probably said, please come with me here. Stay with me. Watch with me. You know, he needed support at that time, even from his friends. Now he knew that the father is with him, even though he cried out to God that if it's possible to take away from him that cup. But Jesus said, not as his will is, but as the father will. And what I like, uh, Joe, he has that Jesus is calling God, you know, Abba, Daddy. You know, he's calling his father. He's placing himself in the hands of his father. And uh, yeah, the, the, the scenes here are amazing. The disciples, unfortunately, the three friends, of they felt asleep. And if we go deeper into this, we understand that they were also crashed under the worries 
of this world because what happened in, in, in immediate time while Jesus told them that he's going to die and all those things. And they were worried and they were under this pressure. But Jesus says, after he came to them and find them, you know, uh, sleeping, says, now you can, you can uh, sleep, you know. Uh, and he said, let's go because uh, those who, who are coming together, you know, me, they are here. Uh, but before that, he said these things, which I would like to take it to my heart. He says, watch and pray not to be deceived. Mm-hmm. We may live in these times, in these days, when we are running through and fro, you know, and if we are not watching, we can easily be deceived. Thank you. Ken, I believe there's a little comment that you'd like to make about um, about that time that Jesus spent in Gethsemane. Yes, it, was a, it was an incredibly difficult time. And three times he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressions of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, that through him perishing millions will gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven, where all is purity, happiness, and glory, to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression, and he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that is willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he goes on to lose his life so that we may live. Mm. Now, Scripture gives us four accounts. Of mm. Yes, they are. Scripture gives us four accounts of the crucifixion. Um, interestingly, the word crucible and crucifix, crucifixion share a common root word. And I would recommend that we all take an opportunity to reread these passages to get a deeper appreciation. But, Nick, we are now outside the city of Jerusalem, a Friday afternoon of the Passover. Can you describe the scene very briefly to us? Sure, um, Joe. And as you said, uh, yeah, in all the Gospels you have the account, but uh, sometimes from different, a little bit of different angle. But in Matthew 27, um, we can read that uh, if our listener also wants to follow up. Um, verse 45, for example, and 51, there are interesting ones. Now, while Jesus was um, on the cross, it mentions that from the sixth hour until the, the ninth, ninth hour, hour mm. there was a darkness over all the land. In some translation, it even says over the world. We don't know that, but uh, definitely in that region, it, it was a darkness, uh, a manifestation of um, what's, what was happening there. And in the temple, the big curtain which separated the um, uh, holy place from the most holy place was torn apart from the top to the bottom. Again, we are not going into that. We don't have time. How thick was that curtain? Very hard to be torn by a human hand, you know? But it was, again, the manifestation of God's power. And uh, 
Jesus on the cross, he's crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I was challenged by somebody just the other day about this, saying that those words doesn't mean translated correctly, my God, my God, why has doubt forsaken me? Somebody challenged me and said that those words were meant to say, my mission has been fulfilled. I reached my destiny. That's what I've been told. But I said, if we look in the context and in the prophets, even in Isaiah 53, which was mentioned, how God said about the suffering of Jesus Christ and for our sin and the pressure of, pressure of our sins, I believe that God really turned away his face from the sins which are upon Jesus Christ. And um, yes, I'm not going to debate that uh, aspect, but people came with all sorts of ideas from uh, different uh, manuscripts. What I would like to say is that uh, while those manifestations happened there, even those people who didn't have to do anything with God or didn't believe in God, like the centurion, he exclaimed, this must be the son of God. While he was witnessing everything going on, firsthand, eyewitnessing, he declared that amazing things. This must be the son of God. Are we believing in Jesus in the same way? Whatever we're going through in this life, whatever happens in this world, to still say God is in control. You know, God will pull us through. And God indeed pulled Jesus through. I mean, he was resurrected, and oh, we praise God for that. Len. Just like to say this, Jesus suffered many things. Eventually he suffered death. Why did he do it? He did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for all you who are listening. He went through this that you might have life. Absolutely. There is much more that can be said or could be said. Words cannot capture what really happened. We struggle to grasp the significance of what transpired in Gethsemane and on Golgotha. What was at stake and the value and estimation we are in God's sight that he would lay down his majesty and glory for us all. This alone should bring us to our knees when self and ego arise in our hearts. Let us not grieve and continue to grieve God. Thank you for the contributions that we've all made on this panel. And I would like and will to um, please close with some thoughts and a prayer. Panel and listener, if only we could understand the lengths to which God has gone to offer us eternal life. We would know that God's heart deeply longs, yearns for everyone to accept him as the Lord of their lives. And so the question confronts us. Will we not all submit to him? His way is truth and his way is life. And only here can we all experience the true rest and assurance that we have all sought for all of our lives. I'd like to, with your permission, uh, Joe, say a prayer for us all. Lord, we, don't, we really don't understand the true depths of humiliation that you have endured to save mankind. 
nor can we even fathom the condescension stepping down from the throne of heaven to become a part of the human race. It's just too profound for us. We ask that we may acknowledge your glorious presence in our lives and catch a glimpse of what we might become through Jesus, our Lord. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, being part of this um, whole series. We talked about uh, in the crucible with Christ and then yeah, mentioning about Jesus' own sufferings. We really would like to invite you to look into these stories and uh, yeah, give yourself to Jesus fully because we live in a very special times. We want to leave you with uh, God's blessings today. May God bless you and help you to walk faithfully in the footsteps of Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my Tell Jesus